Hey everyone. Back in 2020, Dave and I did our second episode ever on my favorite writing book of all time, which is Half Memoir, Half Writing Guide. And there's no way we covered everything in 18 minutes, especially back when we had one episode under our belt. Dave and I share one belt. So today I'm going to talk about the first half of the book, which is a memoir. This is On Writing by Stephen King. And this is The Book Pile. A podcast about the best of books and the worst of books. If this is your first time to the podcast, welcome. And may we suggest checking out our back catalog of over 160 episodes on as many books. We've covered everything from The Hobbit to the biography of Elton John to the roast of the Da Vinci Code. There's something for everyone, or at least... Something for three different people. I'm Kellen Erskine. I'm a comic, a father, and as a father and a writer, I feel like I can relate with Stephen King when he talks about raising a family with the uncertainty of the prospects of a creative writing career. But then I relate less with the anecdotes of not remembering writing an entire book because of cocaine. As usual, my co-host David Vance is off this week, but he'll be back next week when we list our favorite books of 2023. It's always an especially fun episode to me when we recap the previous year. Dave could not make it this week because he's busy sneaking into construction sites at night to steal copper pipe and wire for cash. Uh, He told me that it's not as bad as it sounds and that he's just trying to honor his New Year's resolution to steal things for money. If you haven't listened to it yet, make sure and check out the episode that we released late last week when we interviewed comedian Gary Goleman and talked about his newly published memoir titled Misfit Growing Up Awkward in the 80s. It was such a fun conversation with such a talented comedian and writer. And it includes a couple very unexpected turns where he talked trash of both Jerry Seinfeld and Ernest Hemingway. Also, you can get Gary's book or today's book on writing by clicking the link in the description of these episodes. Uh, You'll also support the podcast, whether you like it or not. These books are available on Kindle or paperback or on Audible for free if you're a new subscriber. So out of the gate, I want to mention that whether or not you're a fan of Stephen King, you might find his story interesting anyway. Whatever sort of childhood you may have assumed about the writer of It and Salem's Lot, There were no seances or animal cruelty in his growing up. He was just a poor kid of the 1950s who fell in love with scary movies and ghost stories. I'm not even a big fan of King, but it's his relentlessness to the craft of writing that I find fascinating and exemplary. Another reason I wanted to talk about Stephen King is that we'll likely do another book of his this year, and I do like that discussing the biographies of writers might give more depth to their books and maybe more context to the episodes of those books that we've covered. So it's really self-serving. On this podcast, we've done episodes on a couple of other King's books, The Shining and Skeleton Crew, the latter of which is a short story collection, which we roasted half of because there are legit stories in there, like The Mist, and then some that are just bananas. Like this one really short one about a milk delivery guy who just puts weird things in the milk. Ooh. By the way, what Stephen King book should we cover next? Let us know on the Patreon. But please just don't say under the dome. Like if I'm going to read another 1,500-page behemoth, I need to finally just finish Bleak House before I get to, like, farmers hunting each other or whatever that Simpsons movie of a novel is about. 
I'm purely judging Under the Dome by its cover. It is interesting to me that Charles Dickens and Stephen King had their initial massive success with short books, A Christmas Carol and Carrie, respectively. And then both of those guys were like, but what if I wrote something a thousand pages longer than this? And they were both right, so what do I know? But I think that my reaction to the success of a short book as an author would be, cool, let's see how much shorter I can go before anyone starts catching on. I think that's what R.L. Stein discovered. Speaking, speaking of R.L. Stein, here's a fun fact. 20 Goosebumps books could fit into Stephen King's It which you should take into account when you come across the other fun fact that Stein has sold more books than King. Does it really count as a book if your novel is 42 pages long? Anyway, it doesn't matter to me. I'm not defending either of them. I don't have a Cujo in this fight. So Stephen Edwin King was born in 1947, and this (laughs) is already sounding like a eulogy. I don't know why I mentioned his middle name. Point is, King was born in the 40s, moved around a lot in the 50s and pretty much stayed in Durham, Maine, USA from the time he was 11 on. Durham is a small town with a population of 900, which has since exploded into a bustling metropolis of 4,000, which is also coincidentally, I believe, the page count of the last Dark Tower book. Uh, One similarity that I found between King and Roald Dahl is that some of their earliest memories have to do with cruel procedures that doctors just did on small children without any sort of anesthetic. For King, uh, he went there to get something lanced deep inside his ears on two separate occasions, each of them one week apart. And in both instances, the doctor told him to lie still and it wouldn't hurt. You don't think it might give a kid trust issues for the rest of his life, or at least make him invent some pretty bad villains? Personally, I think the doctor should overpromise and underdeliver when it comes to pain anticipation. Like before administering a shot, wouldn't it be so much better if the medic said something to you like, it's going to feel like I'm stabbing your arm with a cruise ship anchor. And then when you get the poke of the vaccine or whatever, you can be like, well, I, I guess I'm a tough person. Uh, King talks about writing his very first stories by copying word-for-word stories out of a book when he was six or seven, and then showing them to his mother, who, uh, upon finding out that he copied everything, she said, Write one of your own, Stevie. I bet you could do better. By the way, if Dave was on the podcast, he would probably also just be referring to Stephen King as Stevie. And I love his response. He says, quote, I remember an immense feeling of possibility at the idea, as if I had been ushered into a vast building filled with closed doors and had been given leave to open any I liked. There were more doors than one person could ever open in a lifetime, I thought, and I still think. This next part, uh, I believe I shared on our episode uh, that we did on The Shining, but I think it's worth repeating. From this incident, and inspired by his mother's permission, essentially, to create something of his own. He then wrote a four-page story about these animal friends who drive around in a car. She read that, and he says, quote, She laughed in all the right places and said it was good enough to be in a book. Nothing anyone has said to me since has made me feel any happier. And wouldn't it be great if the true end of that story was that he actually copied that story of animals in a car from The Wind in the Willows. 
uh, King's novel Stand By Me influenced a flood of coming-of-age movies in the 80s and 90s. And, and even now, listen to this description, again, from his childhood. A block down the hill from our apartment was a huge, tangled wilderness area with a junkyard on the far side and a train track running through the middle. This is one of the places I keep returning to in my imagination. It turns up in my books and stories again and again in a variety of names. The kids in It called it the Barrens. We called it the Jungle. And you can see how he influenced storytelling and movies and TV with these iconic set pieces. Even Stranger Things has this area, if you've seen it, down to the train tracks and the junkyard like, major scenes take place in these locations. I grew up in Silicon Valley, so I guess if I were going to write a horror movie about mild stomping grounds, it would have to include, like, the campus complexes for eBay and Hotmail. Can you, can you imagine Pennywise the Clown, like, trying to lurk around an open office? Like, people would just think he was, like, a DoorDash balloon drop-off guy. Uh, when talking about his love of the movies, King says of himself at an early age, forget Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. At 13, I wanted monsters that ate whole cities and radioactive corpses that came out of the ocean and ate surfers. I'm surprised he didn't add lying doctors. Uh, after he saw the movie version of Edgar Allan Poe's The Pit and the Pendulum, he novelized it with his own words and then printed it and sold it at his school. He says that this was his first bestseller, moving 40 copies before it was stopped by the principal. Next, I love this description of getting trouble in high school. He says, it was bad, but what in high school wasn't? At the time, we're stuck in it, like hostages locked in a Turkish bath. At that time, high school seems the most serious business in the world to just about all of us. It's not until the second or third class reunion we start realizing how absurd the whole thing was. <laughs> After writing a spoof newspaper that insulted every member of the high school faculty, he was pretty much forced by his guidance counselor to use his powers for good and go to work for the small town newspaper. They had an opening for a sports reporter, and he says, quote, I told Mr. Gould, my new boss, that I didn't know much about sports. And Gould replied, These are games people understand when they're watching them drunk in bars. You'll learn if you try. Which has got to be one of the funniest, most condescending explanation of sports I've ever heard. And personally, in defense of sports, which I don't come to very often, I'm sober and I still don't understand rugby, so... But it was this Mr. Gould who Stephen King credits as giving him more of an education in writing in 10 minutes than he got in four years of college. It came down to this one day when Gould was marking up a draft of one of King's articles with a red pen and teaching him about the process. He says that Mr. Gould said, when you write a story, first you're telling yourself the story. When you rewrite, your main job is taking out all the parts that are not the story. And I love, I love the simplicity of this principle, which is so often ignored. But it helps me to be just purely creative when I'm writing a rough draft, be it a story or a joke or a song. I feel like it's the same thing that happens when like, someone on the other end of a phone call says, Sorry, I lost you for the last two minutes. What did you say? And then I just reply back with something like, Oh, I got a flat tire, so I Ubered home. 
Uh, in his senior year of high school, Stephen King got a job at a mill, dyeing swatches of cloth to purple and blue. And while working at this, I guess, ancient facility, his supervisors hired a crew to clean the basement, which hadn't been touched in 40 years. And afterwards, one of the crew told King that some of the rats down there were, quote, as big as dogs. And King used this as a seed for a story idea, wrote it, submitted it, and a magazine bought it for $200. And this is when he was making $5 a week writing sports articles. He says that this was his first good idea. But at this time, I also think it's it's important to note that he had been submitting stories to magazines from the time he was like 12 years old and collecting rejection slips like trophies, essentially just a tactile proof that he had tried again and again. He talks about graduating from college and then not finding work, which means he was just ahead of his time because that's pretty much everyone now. So he had to get a job at an industrial washing company cleaning sheets from hotels and hospitals. And he tells the story of this guy named Harry who worked there who had hooks instead of hands due to a workplace-related injury from years before. And he says that this guy Harry would run one of his hooks under hot water, one of them under cold water, then sneak up behind you and press his hooks to the back of your neck to scare you. But I suspect, Harry, that for me at least... You could scare me just as easily without getting your hooks wet, like with any temperature. So I'm pretty sure that if anyone just crept up and surprised me with hooks on the back of my neck, I'd probably give them the same reaction, whether the hooks were chilly or not. And I'd also probably write some pretty good scary books after that as well. I love a good rags to riches story. So to give you an idea of his life pre-Carrie, I'll read you this excerpt. This was in 1972 when he was 24, married with two kids and broke. He says, quote, I landed a job teaching English at the high school. I would be paid a sum of $6,400 a year, which seemed an unthinkable sum after earning $1.60 an hour at the laundry. By the late winter of 1973, we were living in a double-wide trailer in Herman, Maine. I was driving a Buick with transmission problems we couldn't afford to fix. Tabby was still working at Dunkin' Donuts, and we had no telephone. Fast forward to the last 30 pages or so of this memoir portion of the book. A year after this, he sold his first novel, Carrie, for an advance of $2,500, which wasn't enough to let him quit his day job, but they were able to get out of their trailer and into an apartment, buy a new car. Uh, he hoped to eventually get a check for the paperback publishing run of Carrie, which uh, if books were popular enough, that was like the next step, the raise that you would get. And he estimated that this amount could be anywhere from $10,000 to $50,000. And keep in mind, $50,000 in 1974 would be over a quarter million in today's currency. So when he finally did get that phone call on a phone that he now owned, he discovered that he had been offered $400,000. And since Dave isn't here to give an audible reaction, I realize now that I probably should have added like a cash register bell sound to that just to really illustrate how much money that was <laughs> all right i'd like to close with my five favorite quotes from this book one the road to hell is paved with adverbs <laughs> two the most important things to remember about backstory are that a 
everyone has a history, and B, most of it isn't very interesting. Three, do not come lightly to the blank page. Four, and this one is for Alan Dean Foster, if you listen to our episode where we roasted the novelization of the Transformers movie, quote, one of the really bad things you can do to your writing is to dress up the vocabulary, looking for long words because you're maybe a little bit ashamed of your short ones. This is like dressing up a household pet in evening clothes. The pet is embarrassed, and the person who committed this act of premeditated cuteness should be even more embarrassed. <laughs> and five, the scariest moment is always just before you start. Thanks again for listening. Tune in next week for our best books of 2023 episode list episode. And if you're interested in buying or listening to On Writing, click the link. <laughs>